Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Charles Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. One thing that most label bosses have in common is a kind of obsessive relationship with records. For them, it's not enough to just enjoy good music. They have to seek it out, find the sound that no one else has heard, no one else has got, and be the master chef that delivers it to your table. Antel Heitlager is absolutely one of those kinds of label bosses. When he started his store in 1997, he was still at university and was initially selling underground house records out of his halls of residence before opening the first rush hour shop in Amsterdam, soon to become one of the city's most treasured dance institutions. A few years before that, he'd given up his dream of playing professional football, something that was very much on the cards until dance music came into his life. He still plays occasionally, he coaches his kids' team for one, and of course he's represented Rush Hour in the world-famous resident advisor Fiverside Cup. A little bird told me that he approached that event with the steely determination of a World Cup final captain. And if he's that competitive about football even now, imagine what he's like when he's digging for records. Antal's endless search for new sounds has taken him down all kinds of rabbit holes over the years, with everything from soulful house, afrobeat, spiritual jazz, minimal techno, all melting together in his magical DJ sets. And this eclectic approach has had its own huge influence on a generation of selectors in the Amsterdam scene. It's right there to see in the Rush Hour catalogue too, where stuff like 80s Cold Wave and classic Chicago house reissues sit alongside modern dance from the Amsterdam scene. Among the locals are Tom Trago, Sam Proper, Aardvark and Hooney, Antel's preferred B2B partner. The sound of Rush Hour is impossible to boil down to a genre or a snappy phrase, but in its two decades and counting as a store, a label and a distributor, Antel's enterprise has shaped the sound of Amsterdam by carving out a space outside the mainstream, a deep and different take on dance music in the mould of some of Antel's own DJ heroes, Theo Parrish and Moody Man. For a more thorough musical introduction, queue up the playlist for this episode on Spotify. Just search for Relevant Parties, where you'll find loads of music from across the series so far. But now it's time to meet the man of the hour, Antel. Rush Hour is a little bit of an unusual case in the Relevant Parties series so far, because it began as a record shop, not as a label. And I guess out of the people that I've spoken to so far, you're someone who strikes me really as like a collector, first and foremost. You're not necessarily an artist, a DJ. Like it's it's really about like getting records, it seems, mm. and listening to lots and lots of records. Mm. So let's just start with the store then, I think, even though that's um, slightly different. So would you be able to actually just d- describe it a tiny bit for someone who hasn't been there? We set up the store in 97. Uh, it was it used to be in an old uh, student building or, or a, a university building. And uh, we just had the basement over there for like one and a half years, I think. It was kind of 
came about because uh, I used to go to London to buy records and I saw all these small, smaller shops and do-it-yourself shops. And um, that's how we came to the idea to um, just go in into another shop, you know. So there were also hairdressers in there and uh, they were selling like secondhand clothes. And it was a bit of a kind of a london london style concept or something we weren't really used to it in 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 holland right because everything would have their own storefront it was literally like a a grown-up shop or something but um we were just like 19 years old so we wanted to start small and um this worked out and after one and a half years we moved uh like 50 maybe 100 meters down the street and found a really small shop maybe 24 25 square meters or something super small but this was like our own premises so uh yeah we went for that we were there for maybe 17 years and then we moved to the current location and we're there now for uh, five years and what what's uh, different about the new one is it just bigger the new one is bigger. We have everything under one roof, also our office and um, the distribution people are under one roof. Yeah, so that was kind of bigger because the second store was really small still and we, we did everything from there, also distribution, also warehousing. And from there on, we moved to the other side of the street where we found a little office, then we found a little warehouse there. And so we had a few more buildings around the street and then left all them and went to the bigger space mm. so i imagine that the average customer i expect you probably get quite a few tourists actually and do you have a lot of like regular customers still are there local djs who will still always come in and see what you've got for them yeah well that's really where we that was really our first like uh, clientele i would say only regulars a lot of djs a lot of music interested people and obviously Amsterdam also has a lot of tourists. So we get tourists as well, but it really started with a hardcore group of uh, music fanatics. And uh, <laughs> yeah, they've been, you know, now we are, this is like 24. Yeah, we're going for 24 years this year. So, you know, it's, it changed a bit over the years, but still a lot of people from the day one are still, um, shopping with us uh, yeah who who are some of your oldest customers who are still coming in uh, a lot of the artists is, well i mean from the known people like people like sam proper or you know like djs like that tom trago i mean kids sublime a lot of the early uh ROT, uh i don't know a lot of the guys who used to who we used to release in the early days they're still still there and uh, yeah and is it a kind of personalized service do a lot of those DJs get like packages of things that that uh, your staff think they might like. Is it that kind of record store? Uh, we actually uh, <laughs> we actually buy records and sell records that uh, we believe all of our clients <laughs> likes in that sense. So there's not really any privileges for anybody in that sense. You know, maybe well, maybe lovely. for some so some people maybe they come from really far. I would, you know, we would sometimes when we have something and then, I don't know, Sadar or something comes in uh, only like twice a year because he doesn't live here, but we have something and his name is written on it, right? Then we, then we keep it. But I mean, we have a lot of records and uh, yeah, yeah. but just have to come in and then we, we help him. <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, well, we're talking about the shop, but I guess the shop has been, I mean, mostly closed in the last year. Um, and obviously you haven't been uh, touring and DJing and stuff. So I, I'd like to know, I mean, I have to ask everyone this now. Um, yeah, what has the last year involved for you? How have you managed to get through the pandemic so far? Well, first it was kind of like a shock. Then it's kind of like acceptance, right? And then, uh, and <laughs> Stages, then you have to, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you have to see, like, okay, uh, how are we going to deal with it? And then when you finally found a way how to deal with it, then all these other things happen. You know, there's another lockdown, or we open up again, or not. And there's all these sub rules to you know fighting the pandemic so as a for retail it's kind of like difficult because you constantly have to adjust but uh now we kind of yeah also used to it i guess and we just do what we need to do and we find the way to um stay alive so um yeah you know we have to wait and be patient but in the beginning obviously it's very insecure but right now i feel kind of like we found a way and uh, also a lot of people keep on buying records, even in mail order, right? Really? Yeah, I was yeah. wondering about that. Do you think people are buying different kinds of records, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there's also quite some people that can't afford records anymore because they have no income. But then there's other people maybe who do have income and they have nothing to do and they can't spend the money anywhere. So they buy a bit more, I guess, you know, so it's, it kind of balances out. Um but we see also the trust in buying records, I guess, is still there. There was also a period, like maybe two months in with the pandemic. Maybe people were wondering, like, where's this going? You know, bit bit insecure about why to buy a record. And so, so yeah, there's these different stages, I think. Mm. Yeah. I get the impression from reading a couple of interviews with you that you are extremely busy usually and that you quite like being extremely busy and that that's a kind of natural state of business for you you know not just with the label with the store but DJing and all the travel that comes with that and you have a family and I'm curious about how you've been kind of dealing with the extra time if you've had I mean I assume you must have had some extra time what have you been doing with yourself right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> i started a, a lot of things that i didn't finish oh great <laughs> <laughs> i started french i started portuguese <laughs> all that stuff i started playing the piano oh wow but i That's finished great. i stopped with everything or didn't follow up you know how it goes you know you just try to see if you can do some stuff but uh next to that a lot of cooking actually and that is guy i mean i think i am uh have to what we call the Corona kilos here. I think I added quite a bunch with that. So making pies and whatnot. But uh, oh, great! Yeah. What, what's yeah, your most um, what's your most elaborate and complicated masterpiece of a dish that you can pull off? No, there's no masterpieces. I, I <laughs> just making some ice cream, green tea ice cream, <laughs> vanilla ice cream. You know, hazelnut. What is it? A hazelnut? Can you say that? Is that English? Yeah, yeah, Hazel? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But it looks shit, but it tasted all right. So, so, you know, but also cooking and, you know, trying to do a lot of like Japanese food, like snacks, like okinomiyaki mm. or, uh, you oh, know, yeah. the, the, what's it called? The tonkatsu and these sort of things. You just try everything, right? Right. They have time for it now. So, but do you find a, have you found it kind of difficult not having the usual rhythm of 
touring and playing and traveling? Um, I, to be honest, personally, I kind of enjoy it right now. Just to every weekend, I'm like, ah, don't have to go anywhere. But obviously, I miss uh, the DJing and stuff. But it's also it's a bit weird, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, the rhythm is totally different right now. I'm still enjoying music. There's just no traveling. And I can't really say I miss traveling in that sense. Although I do miss going somewhere, but to travel every weekend to DJ is not per se something I miss, right? Yeah, I've heard that a lot from musicians and DJs. But there is one silver lining, which is just not having to be away every weekend. And yeah, not having to be constantly like in a, I don't know, in a bed that isn't your own and all of that stuff. Yeah. So let's let's rewind a little bit then, I guess. Um, I mean, Rush Hour is like a cornerstone of of Amsterdam dance music, um, and obviously the the shop itself is a destination if you're visiting the city. I think um, I wanted to ask about what record shops were really exciting for you as a kid because I know you were saying that you used to come to London and go to record shops, but what were the what were the very first ones that you went to? Because you obviously had a real affinity for the record shop quite early on yeah because that really intrigued me but um uh when i i mean i actually started with trying to uh dj and but at the same time simultaneously i was interested in that particular music which i heard in clubs and there was like a British DJ in the club there were a few British DJs where i came from but you had a DJ called crazy sean and uh, I asked him about record stores in London. So, you know, I had the map of London, gave him the map of London, and he would draw <laughs> in all the shops, right? Yeah, people can't even imagine probably right <laughs> now anymore. And I would have this map and then go to London and then, you know, find uh, Honest John's at Portobello Road or these sort of things. But, or was it Honest John's? It was more the market, I think. There was a market on Portobello Market or something, right? He would yeah, and Honest John's too. Thing. That was there too. Yeah, I was already there, but also like the Nothing Hill uh, uh, music and video exchange. He would draw that in. Oh, yeah, that was great. (laughs) And then there was uh, one uh, store that we already heard about was Fat Cat Records. So uh, going to Fat Cat was always, uh, that was really exciting, right? But what kind of records were you looking for then? I, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. Uh, I, it's just you just try to find the right tunes for for DJing, right? I, I wasn't I wasn't so aware of um, I wasn't so aware of what is what was what. Let's put it like that. You know, I do know that I bought stuff that uh, I, I still kind of have, like. Uh, Steve O'Sullivan, Blue Train number one. I bought that in Fat Cat or, uh, uh, Larry Heard, Appreciation Society, Jamie Reed, you know, the first and, uh, first one on that yellow one and that sort of stuff, you know, but not really realizing that maybe that is from, from London or from, from, from the UK or you know, I wouldn't really see per se the difference between a lot of things. I obviously I had some knowledge, but. Yeah, right. It was There's really when I was of... 16, 17 years old. So, you know, so yeah. finding out. And there's that kind of freshness when you're that age where you, particularly with electronic music, which, you know, there's a lot of nuance in being able to identify like a particular sound or guess what yeah. city or year it's from. And when you don't know any of that, you're just going on, you know, 
how how it makes you feel and maybe what the cover looks like, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. But the funny thing also is sometimes you try to find stuff at the store, but the store is just about other music, right? Mm. You just don't really realize. But I realized that Fat Cat brought me a lot of things that kind of still are in my, um, how can I say, in my collection. Mm. Like maybe also Ian O'Brien, these sort of things, or a lot of British things, I guess. So, mm. yeah, that no, was, was, yeah. So, but how did you actually discover dance music specifically then? What was your entry point? Because, I mean, a lot of people tend to have often a single experience with dance music where they yeah. go to a club or what was your kind of exposure? Uh, really my brother's uh, music because he is like four and a half years older than me and uh, he, w- he started to work in clubs and uh, he would introduce me to the music unconsciously because I would hear it from his room and I was kind of like, so he bought the records, but he was not about uh, mixing the records. So he only had one turntable without pitch. And then he would put the music on and it immediately started with a kick, right? And it also ended with a kick. At least that's how I heard it. I just heard, <laughs> what's this strange music? It starts with a kick and then it finished in just one straight line. I, 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 it was really weird to me because I didn't understand. And at that time, I also started thinking that house music was from Holland or something. I don't know. I didn't, I had no idea, right? Um, but, and then he would come home with some DJs that play in clubs and blah, blah, blah. So I started to notice a little bit, but I, I guess I was like, 13 or 14 and was also totally not interested in it but at the time i turned like 15 16 i started to get interested in it and then he moved out he moved out and um, we had to move him because he started studying uh, on the other side of holland and uh, i helped him out i think i was about 16 or something and then he had a party there with all his student friends and they were playing like house music all night and you're drinking a beer. And then I was like, ah, oh, oh, and it starts to land, right? And then I start to find out what this all is. And right, then, yeah, right. From that point on. Did you actually grow up in Amsterdam? A little bit outside. Mm-hmm. Zandam or Kohanazan. So it's like 20, 15 kilometers outside, but... Uh, we had the, the advantage that there was quite an important venue uh, in that little town that would would bring uh, a lot of known people like Derek May or Carl Gregg or, uh, you know, all these people would also play there. And my brother used to work there, but he also worked in clubs in Amsterdam. And then at some point I started working in the club as well. I think when I was turned 17 or maybe 18, I started working in the club in the wardrobe and uh yeah and then I I also earned a bit more money than what you would normally earn you know when you do a job at that age because the clubs with the with the tips and everything so I would then you go out and buy the records and that's a little bit how uh, how it went and mm. was that club kind of musically specific did it have a certain genre that it was known for or something it was always a local club, but for some reason, the house music really did well there with the right. students and everything. So they, yeah, yeah. And, and they had a link with, with Amsterdam. So a lot of people would play in Amsterdam. They would then also play in that club. So that's why for some reason that little town had that club, but it wasn't like any club in Holland had that kind of, uh, or any town in Holland would have that kind of club, right? 
But it was just kind of luck because, yeah, I would hear like Daryl Wynn or uh, Alton Miller or whatever, you know, all these people would come and play there. And it was kind of like normal to me, but at the end of the day, it wasn't really normal to hear him over there. Um, so you're not the first musician I've ever spoken to uh, who once had dreams of becoming a professional football player. <laughs> is that we were you actually we properly in training for that was that something you were aiming for yeah yeah i did um it's something that was on my mind till my 18th or something wow okay and i uh, also kept on doing it but then around 16 the music started to come in and um had yeah, to make then, a choice yeah i don't even know if it was a choice it just went <laughs> like that yeah i think I think about it sometimes because now I do uh, football coaching for, for kids and tra oh, training as well. <laughs> so I'm kind of back into it. And then I sometimes think what it was, but I remember well at the time that the concept of winning, you know, when you're a kid, you like to win stuff, I guess. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But at some point it was like this concept of winning is really dull. <laughs> and I went into the clubs and it was not about winning. It was just about enjoying stuff and hearing nice music. And then, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Actually. It's the, yeah, there's a division there, isn't there between that kind of striving for something and, you know, just existing and being, it's almost like a philosophical sort of division yeah. in a way, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. But so you're a football coach now then. Yeah. For kids. I do. This is it's already my, uh, Sixth year now, I think. Oh, great. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you've been able to do a little bit of that even through the pandemic. Are kids allowed to play yeah, yeah, football? Yeah, Is the, that allowed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's going. Yeah. So that's nice. I have a, I have a way of, you know, to go out and do something else. Uh, what team do you support? I don't really support. I watch. What? But Ajax. Uh, Ajax. Yeah, okay. supporting is Fine. a big word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, normally, normally people do, like are so you know you cut them and they bleed their football team. So that's an interesting way of not really. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but you stop like, caring about like winning, just, right? So that's what I said. I, yeah. I only care when there is a World Cup or something, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then yeah. even I don't really care anymore. I like it and I like to go into it for a bit, but then one day later I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Sure. Just to rewind on the point of how you started the store, because I think it's worth saying that I believe you basically bought up someone else's collection, right? It was it another shop or another person's collection in order to start your own stock? No, we were already buying here and there small bits and pieces and everything. But uh, then, you know, when, when you start doing it, the concept of winning is starting to come back a bit, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah we just saw an opportunity right uh because i was starting to buy records in 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 london for instance at the music and video exchange in notting hill you could buy it a bit cheaper there and then resell it in um in holland right and for me as a student and it was a way to get a little bit of money and buy some more records um <laughs> yeah and then I met somebody else with whom I later on started Rush Hour. And um, um, then we were just looking for, for, for opportunities. We were just looking around and seeing, okay, where can we buy records and how can we do this? And then I found uh, 
or not necessarily found. I, I, I knew a record store in my old neighborhood that had a basement full of import records, but we could clearly see it was just kind of like keep on buying imports, but he wasn't really selling a lot of it, right? So it was just piling up. And we looked at all the records and we we're like, I don't think this is really selling, right? It's it's not really going fast. Maybe he wants to get rid of it. So we just asked him and said, like, what what if we buy like your whole basement? <laughs> was just bluffing. And then he said, <laughs> and then he said, Yeah, okay. <laughs> we're like, okay. So yeah, then we bought the well, the whole ba- basement is big because there was a lot, but we bought about five thousand pieces, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which is quite a lot, but it's not. It wasn't this whole basement. It was all the house music in the basement. And um, but if he wasn't selling it, why did you think you could sell it? Because because it was kind of like a one man shop, and he would buy imports. But you could see in that town nobody really bought everything. But let's put it differently. There were still a lot of good titles that we thought like, hey, this this is good stuff. This is stuff we want, but. Nobody really cares about it, I guess. It's just yeah, laying yeah. there. So for, for, for the record nerds out there, for instance, there was like a whole pile of, uh, say, two, 300 Chicago Relief records, right? And yeah, it wasn't really going anywhere. It was just there, like Boo Williams, Gene Ferris, blah, blah, blah. Then there was piles of Strictly Rhythm, piles of Nervous Records, uh, Moody Man Records. It was just laying there. And we were like, yeah, we want those. We knew we could sell them. But people would uh, were not per se so adventurous neither, right? They wouldn't. People would go to Amsterdam and buy the records, but they wouldn't really go to another small town. And then, yeah, I don't know. It was just more opportunity, I guess. So... We thought like all the old stuff is laying there and it wasn't maybe one, two, three years old. Prescription, a lot of prescription as well. And he said yes. So we paid, I think, paid maybe one, two guilders, one euro at the time per record. Oh, wow. 5,000 records. Yeah, That is a bargain. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're 18, 19 years old, yeah, you're no. spending 5,000, you're still like, the Whoa, most shit. money you've yeah. ever spent on anything. But yeah. yeah. That's a lot. You get a lot for your buck. That's also what we thought after a week because we got really (laughs) nervous. (laughs) Suddenly looking at this one room full of records. Yeah, uh the whole student apartment was full of it. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but we had one, that's also funny. We had one customer already at that time because we were selling from the student apartment, right? But we just had a few boxes. Then all of a sudden we had a lot. Um, and, we had one guy who collected everything <laughs> and okay. he, he wrote everything down in a book. <laughs> That's now Discogs. No, no. <laughs> he now runs Discogs. No, yeah. <laughs> he's probably now with, you know, with Discogs around. He's like, shit. Yeah. And it's changed uh, everything. Yeah. He, 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 but he had this book. And in this book, he had all the catalog numbers from everything. And then we were like, hmm, maybe this is really good for him. So we offered it to him, like, hey, you want to buy every buy all these records for the same price that we paid for it? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And we were like, oh, okay. So we sold it a week later, everything, but we took out like the 500 best ones. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is a, that is a missing part of the tale. I hadn't realized that. I thought it was like 
here's our yeah five thousand records, and then you put them in a shop, and then away you went. But actually, no, 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 no only because the we best. got we got scared and we sold like forty five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but we had our money back plus we had 500 really good ones and yeah that, that was kind of like still till today that's my best deal ever no. <laughs> <laughs> no did you find it hard to actually sell those ones then seeing as you'd pick the best ones i guess you probably just wanted to dj with them by that time yeah of course that's that, <laughs> uh yeah that's you know you get in you get high on your own suppliers that's, yeah, uh, so oh, you yeah. can't let go and uh, no yeah <laughs> Does yeah. that mean then that, because, uh, so Rush Hour is also um, a distributor. So I was wondering how quickly that happened that you realized that it would be logical for you to uh, distribute other people's labels as well. Like, because by this time it's like, you're still a student, but quite quickly you've got this, you know, quite large business appearing, I guess. Um, was, was that just something that you went into knowing that you, that was, you wanted to do that? No, so we started, so this, this with the records, it all happened around 96, I think. Then in 97, October, we started the store and soon after it was two of us. And then soon after a third uh, person who still uh, works at rush hour, uh, he came to help out and started working with us. Um, but for, for, I think for a year, for one and a half year, we started importing records from uh, small distributors outside of Holland. So we went to Hamburg and in Hamburg you had container distribution and that's um, now Word and Sound. And container, we found a lot of interesting things that we liked. And then we didn't have money, of course. Uh, we needed to pay with the bank or whatever. And the guys were like, ah, just drive home. When you're at home, you, you pay us. And we were like... Okay, <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> so we did it like that. Obviously, we came home, we paid for it, but but it was just very friendly, right? So we started importing from everywhere. So we realized we had a nice export network as well. Right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the first people, you know, the musicians who would come to our store, they would also play their tunes for us, right? Some of them made music and yeah, I want to put this out blah 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 so we were like okay we we can we can maybe do this for you and uh, that's how we started our label but as soon as we had our label we immediately started sending them to the places where we also bought records from right so we already sold sold to container in Hamburg and they would distribute it in into Germany and yeah so it was just the import export channel before we knew it mm. I was thinking a bit about the sort of state of dance music in the late nineties and where Rush Hour might fit into all of that. Cause, um, I guess, you know, in the late nineties, you'd had this decade of wild innovation, all of these kind of, uh, different sounds and ideas slowly becoming more like established scenes and established genres. And then by the late nineties, it's like, super clubs, superstar DJs and kind of Ibiza and this sort of thing. And I just wondered like where, where you saw Rush Hour fitting in with the kind of bigger things that were going on at the time. Like what was the local sound if there was one? Did you kind of reflect what was happening in Amsterdam at the moment or? No, in Amsterdam club scene was, um, it's where I, I, I went, you know, I grew up in, 
I would say. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was a night, not all of a sudden, but there was a night, uh, called the chemistry. I think this was around 95, 96. So I used to go there and around that time they would play music. I would be really into, but you know, closer to, to 2000 and on the music became a bit more progressive. So I kind of lost interest, but in the early years, they would play a lot of Chicago music and, uh, a lot of good stuff let's put it like that at least <laughs> what i considered good stuff and so but there were there was no way no chance at all that we would be djing there right it was just another world so we were we were not really connected with that but the record store we sold to just music lovers i guess you know they found us they people who, who were into detroit techno or chicago house new york house that sort of stuff and uh, soon after, a DJ from the Paradiso, Casey the Funkaholic, who was a programmer there, he picked up on us and he saw that we were able or wanting to combine like house music with disco. And that was something that didn't happen at all in, in Amsterdam, right? It was kind of sound-wise, it was kind of segregated. So the clubs were playing the latest house music that was there. And then you had... In Paradiso, you had a night called Paradisco where they would play 80s disco and boogie and more uh, poppy disco stuff, maybe Sheila E or whatever, that sort of sound. But it was kind of segregated. And then there was hip-hop nights, also segregated. Uh, but we heard like uh, from that distributor in Hamburg, when we drove back, he gave us a tape. We heard Theo Parrish, right? He's playing like old soul, old funk house, slow tempo, everything mixed. So we were really interested in that. And we started digging that stuff. And then when this programmer, DJ Casey the Funkaholic, came to our shop for the first time, he heard us do that. But he left house music because it wasn't soulful for him. He liked soulful music, right? So he's into hip hop, he's into soul. But house music wasn't soulful to him anymore because it went so progressive. But then he came with us and he saw like, hey, they're combining like Roy Ayers with house and this and that. And it, and then he got interested again, but lucky for us, he was a programmer at Paradiso. So he <laughs> gave us a night, right? And he gave us a night. It was 98. So it was within a year. And he wanted to bring like Moody Man and Theo Paris, which we were really fond of. So we organized it together and um, yeah, we brought them in on October 98 but we were already promoting this music since October 97. So for a year, we were already like, and a lot of people came to the shop and were into it. So by the time they finally came and they played, it's kind of like uh, the, the whole room was full and the, the night was, was, was good, was success. And then we started a monthly residency there. So, you know, we were quite influenced by what was happening in Amsterdam, but I think everything we did, was kind of next to what was going on in Amsterdam. It's funny to think about the slowness of that, like the idea that for a year people might have heard some of that music in your shop 
Yeah. <laughs> and that might have been really their only exposure to it, but they've decided, okay, this is something I'm into. And then like a whole year later, like, oh, great, we can finally go and see Modi Man. Like it just, it's quite alien to today, right? Where you decide, oh, I like this DJ. Yeah. I'll go on the SoundCloud. I'll listen to all their mixes, whatever. Yeah. I, yeah it's quite special. Yeah. The, the interesting thing also is the slowness that you mentioned. I sometimes think about it because then you also see that there was not much going on in Amsterdam. There was a lot going on, but at the same time, there was nothing going on because everything we wanted to do, we could really do at our own pace. So for instance, for years, you know, when Theo, for instance, because we booked him every year and when he came over, then um, we said, okay, let, let's do it next year again. But today, there's so much stuff going on. So if somebody sees something that works, they would immediately jump onto it or whatever, right? But clubs would be in competition with each other for all that stuff. But it was really, really slow. A lot of things you could just take time. And I guess also, you know, you would take the train to a certain city and buy one record because you can only find it there and then go back with the train for that one record. Nowadays, people can just order it and it comes in but and then you would listen to this record over and over again as well i just things just go so far so much faster now but yeah actually thinking about theo parish i guess around that time I, i'm wondering if maybe on those trips when he was in europe he might have also been playing plastic people because so i was digging through like with the very earliest um russia releases and i i had not been aware um until i did the research for this quite how like a lot of the early releases are really they almost sound like they could be kind of uk records like the broken beat type of thing or what in my head sounds like yeah. a uk record like the kind of broken beat thing stuff that would have been played at plastic people at the time um so i think it was like aardvark um the volkov and paradox records and there was like a kind of hip-hop influence in there almost all of that sounds all, all of that stuff that kind of the soul jazz elements and the syncopation yeah uh, uh, to me that that must have been quite unique at that period in europe generally i'd have thought i don't know did it did it seem like a a niche or, or was there a small scene of people that were coming to to listen to that um, yeah, but plastic people is later. It's already later than yeah, what right. We just, uh, it I think is plastic right. Yeah, people is maybe seven, eight, nine years later than the period what we just described because this is this nine, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. Maybe well, plastic I think there was the there was, there was the night called CDR at Plastic yeah. in about oh one oh two, I think, which would have yeah. been like people like Diego and yeah, that bugs in the but, attic and stuff. But, but that's afterwards, yeah. But definitely, um, because that's what we kind of saw when we started the shop was like, uh, Detroit house, but then also like Spinner, for instance, DJ Spinner, you know, coming from a hip hop started making house music. So there were New Yorkers starting to make house music. Then you had, um, uh, Goya, uh, music distribution, which, um, uh, started like 2000 black from Digo. Um, then Seji, Domu, but also somebody like Volkov, you know, Enrico started archive records. So all these things started around the time, like the first 2000 black Digo record that came into our store and was really weird because we didn't even know if we should have played it at 33 or 45, because it was kind of like, <laughs> right. We just figured, figuring out what kind Love of, those. what is this doing? And so, yeah, there were different pockets of scenes. I think also in um, 
uh, in Switzerland, you had uh, Sassy J and the scene over there started to do things. Um, obviously, Artvark and Red Nose District, Kids Sublime are very much influenced by um, Detroit House, but also by uh, West London and the uh, what we then called broken beat. Now they say broke beat, but then we called broken <laughs> beat and we couldn't say broken beat. So we had to call it West London sound. And, and then the sound, uh, the, the, the Philadelphia, like Rich Medina King, Brit, all these things, Ursula Rucker, Alma Horton, all the, I think it was kind of like, a yeah, where all these pockets and, 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 and cities and people uh, started doing really nice soulful music mm. um, and i think the way that that developed as well in the next in, well in sort of the first 10 years or so of rush hour it's it's interesting to me because i was really struck by how i mean the word timeless is a bit ridiculous it gets sort of bandied about a lot but a lot of those records they have a sort of timeless feel i think and, and they have a sort of uh, like a, a, a moodiness and like a kind of deepness that um, that a lot of the sort of progressive house of the time that you were reacting against wouldn't have had. But I was also wondering that, I mean, it's a big contrast with what I would sort of perceive as the big lineage of Dutch dance music. <laughs> so like mm. Gabba and Hardstyle mm -hmm. and all of this stuff that Holland is super famous for. I was wondering if, if there had ever been a point where you were into stuff like Gabba, like how much did that ever reach your radar? Um, the, 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 the most it reached my radar was that I had to work, uh, on a Sunday morning at an after, after, after party when the club Oof. where I used to work, <laughs> uh, wasn't doing so well anymore. And it started doing Gabber parties. And then, uh, yeah, I had to work in a wardrobe uh, <laughs> and then there was a bit of Gabber, but no, the music was, uh, was never of any interest, uh, to me and also not the trance music. I can show you a flyer actually from that uh, venue where I started DJing and you would see the Jedi Knight. So you would see Mark Pritchard. You would see Derek May, uh, my name, but also Tiesto. You would see them all on one flyer in 98, wow. right? So that all happened in one venue. Wow. But they were already like polar, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it already started to kind of branch out in everybody's own direction. And uh, we, we, yeah, I always, I always kind of heard that the music that I like, that people maybe couldn't dance on it or whatever, or it was too mellow or too light or not, not too direct enough. But um, when I heard like DJs like Theo Parrish play for the first time, I was kind of convinced. And it was almost like seeing the truth or hearing the truth because before that, I was trying to discover what I really liked and what was really my sound. You know, I, I guess it's normal when you're like 17, 18, 19, 20, you're kind of like discovering stuff. And at some point you kind of like lock in and they're kind of like, yeah, that's what I really like. And you start to learn and also start to uh, be confident about what you like, I guess. At least that, that's how it worked for me with house music because I, I was never really into a lot of things that everybody liked. For instance, I have never been into hip hop. Oh, that's funny though, because that's like so close. <laughs> there are lots of things yeah. that you do like that are really yeah, yeah. close, but just. You know, yeah, and quite. I also have hip hop records. I mean, I like Jay Dilla or, you know, Tribe right, right. or Dilla mm -hmm. Soul. I like it, but it wasn't like I, I, I listened to it all the time. Mm hmm. I think your personal, very eclectic taste has 
obviously a lot of sway on the label and the shop. And I think in a sort of broader cultural sense, um, it has as well. Like I was thinking about just how many reissues the label has put out and even quite recently, quite a lot of really interesting reissues. And I think that I feel like in a way Rush Hour came along at just before a time when dance was able to reevaluate its own history a bit or electronic music was able to kind of reevaluate its own history. And I think Rush Hour has had um, quite a lot to do with that changing, um, you know, less about this shock of the new forward momentum, everything has to be faster or harder or more complicated. And it's almost like a uh, listening to how different kinds of sounds could go together or, you know, like Theo Parrish yeah. or someone does. And yeah, I, I guess I, I wanted to talk briefly about some of the reissue material and how you got into hunting for records from other countries, other cultures. What's the kind of thing that drives you towards these more unusual records there's a, there's a couple, couple of things the first thing is just uh you're just exploring and you're just trying to discover uh music but in amsterdam and that's why i also thought london shops were really nice the thing with amsterdam was that they would the shops would only have new stuff every week they had new imports and when you were too late a record was gone you wouldn't see it anymore the other dynamic problem was that the people who worked in the record shops, they were DJs and it was not of their interest to give you the best stuff, rec- the best stuff right? <laughs> they would give that to their, D- their big DJ friend who they wanted yes. to DJ with. Right. <laughs> but then if they had that hit record, they were not reordering that hit record. No, they were, you know, was under the radar. Totally. So that system was kind of like weird. But then when I came to London, I saw Backstock. You know, I go to Soho and you go to Reckless and everything is in the bins. You go to Notting Hill Gate, to Music Video Exchange, everything is in the bins, old stuff, blah, blah. So you finally find that stuff, right? So that kind of intrigues the inner stamp collector of you where you try <laughs> to, yeah, right? You find that old stuff. I've always looked back for things because I wasn't around or I wasn't able to find it. So when you finally find it, that's nice. So, but at the same time, you're also interested in new music. So I see these as the same route. And when you then learn, for instance, when you hear a DJ play old stuff and new stuff, you just hear it's about tunes, right? It's not necessary about everything always having to be new. I like I like new progressive stuff, but I also know when I need to like new stuff. So if it's if it's just a good tune, but it's made in the seventies or in the sixties, whatever. If I feel music has a soul and it's honest, then why would I not like it? That's the whole thing. I do, I like every type of music as long as I can feel it. So. That's the first thing. And then the second thing was I thought I was really influenced, too much influenced by American music at some point. Mm, interesting. I was like, everything is like, because, because we were so in love with house and you start to discover it's really, really American music. And, but then you also think like, how come this American culture has so much uh, influence on what I like as a person. And then I just started, yeah, I just started to look around and I I actually started stop listening for a while to 
American, you know, like house music or all these things and, um, started getting into trying to discover what, what, what else is made. And that's how I got into much more Brazilian music, but also music from Turkey, also music from any country in Africa. You know, it, I think the Ethiopics and like a label like Soundway, they released like Ghana sounds. So it was a lot of music from Ghana, but then obviously the American uh, version of Ghana music, everything was quite like funky. Um, so still, but it was just, I just tried to explore and just try to open up and just try to find other things than what I knew. Mm, mm. That's how, uh, things got broader. Yeah. I was least. just listening to the, um, Radio Verdi compilation, yeah, which I yeah. really like. Yeah. 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 And I think it's that feeling of, um, yeah, it, like you say, it, it frees you from, just playing new things you you get space to just put songs together and pieces together that you think will work but I do think that style and that approach and the way that Rush Hour has mixed up those records within the catalogue and so on seems to be really influential particularly for a kind of a certain kind of DJ style that I associate with a lot of Amsterdam DJs, but also just more generally now, I think it's completely more normal than not to play in quite an eclectic way. That's almost like an expected thing now, I think. Well, it's definitely normal because uh, right now, I think dance floors in, in New York or in the U- US, you know, there's always been dance floors where they would, you know, uh, the loft or something, right? They, uh, David Mancuso, but the same thing, I think, for London, where there is such a, or the UK, where there's such a strong culture in music, they've always uh, uh, played different types of music as long as it's, uh, if people like it. But I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the case in the club music scene. That's definitely not in Amsterdam, but also definitely not in clubs where I played around that time they would really started to wonder how to call it, right? When you play a bit of disco and a bit, you know, play a bit of jazz or African music, or it was, was not so uh, common. And um, yeah, I also know, uh, you know, I played uh, in uh, Hamburg with uh, Tyree Cooper on his night and I uh, played, um, I started playing Roots Maneuver, down tempo. I broke kind of the house vibe, play Roots Maneuver, and then play a Roy Ayers or something. And the guy came to me and was really angry. <gasps> Not Tyree Cooper, but the the, yeah. the, the club the owner, boss. right? Of course. What did you do with the music? and But also in Berlin, right? Even on uh, certain nights where I would expect to be able to play uh, uh, all sorts of music. It was kind of like, can you play house? um often but yeah i i think it kind of normalized in the club scene up till a point now where it's kind of weird when you hear a european dj maybe playing only disco music so it's kind of what people now consider as sometimes is weird but i think it's also important to realize where it was coming from and i think a lot of opinionated people there don't really see what happened the last 20 years. They just see what happens now, but they didn't see what happened the last 20 years. And I think right now there's a lot of uh, music appreciation and people really know the tunes that are played, right? So 
I think there's much more awareness now, which also kind of. Yeah, that's like an interesting way of thinking about, because I was going to ask as well, like as someone who, you know, you're a collector, you're a digger, you're seeking out new records. And I guess gradually as the internet and discogs and Shazam and all these things came along to make that job, like, you know, a two second job. So where do you, where do you go next as someone who's always, you know, looking for something interesting? But maybe the response to that is, yeah, but now more people know the music and more people know more about it. So perhaps it's like a bit less mystique might still be good for the culture, if you like. I don't no, know. I, th- I, think, I think everything is good for the culture. There's just also a downside to it. But in, in general, I think uh, all the tools you can have to find music or whatever, it all works in everybody's benefit. And I also think uh, people know things quicker. But right when things become convenient, it's it's about what the individual does with it. You know, uh, the 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 art form or the the pain or the hours that you put in or the work, whatever, doesn't have to change if the tools you have make things easier for you. So, you know, I used to maybe travel somewhere to find a few records nowadays i'm like yeah i'm not gonna do that because i can do it on youtube and then order it from a website or something but the time i have left what do i do with this you know so you should probably just look for more records (laughs) yeah probably (laughs) buy more records yeah (laughs) no but it's it's like it's so that's how i see it right i don't Mm -hmm. and um but what i do also think is that the first time when I started looking maybe for more exotic music, I wouldn't mind so much what maybe the song was about because, you know, musically it would just hit me or I, I would feel it. But nowadays I think, uh, yeah, there's some awareness that sometimes when you DJ in a certain song, but you don't know what it's about, that maybe you do have to know what it's about. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But but 20 years ago, I mean, nobody cared what you were listening for strange music out of which country. But now they are actually caring and they also want to know what it's about. So. Right. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, it's just progression. When you started Rush Hour, it was just when music was kind of on the precipice of a big shift from from analog to digital, essentially. And I guess you started as vinyl was starting to get less um, less relevant. Were, were there points in the kind of earlier days when it was difficult to run the shop, difficult to run the label? Like, were there points where you thought it wasn't going to work anymore because vinyl was disappearing? Now, when we started, I sometimes thought, like, this is not going to work, but we kept on doing it. Then uh, the second wave, we had some nice years, and then obviously uh, uh, the Napster download stuff started happening and then you could really see some people leaving vinyl right they were like all right let's go out uh it's all gonna go digital that's now how i'm gonna consume my music and then it was also some tough years i think for the shop but then there was a new generation coming again and they would also be interested in the old music and that's also when we started doing some reissues and stuff uh, I think around 2007, because we already worked with the music since 97. And all of a sudden, this older thing started to become in, in fashion again, I, I guess. You know, people started liking them again. 
<laughs> and but they couldn't get them because Discogs would say like it's expensive and you can't find it, right? So that's kind of like how we also started reissuing some things with people that we already knew because we had them on our club nights and and stuff like that. So, but then maybe yeah, like it's kind of ten ten years ago, a little bit more thinking about these reissues and. I mean, for reasons that I think are still a little bit unclear, vinyl has made quite a comeback. Um, and I think it seems as though there are quite a lot of people who buy vinyl and don't actually even play it. They just really like to own records. Um, do you think that's sustainable? Do you think there's still an appetite for it? Or is that kind of fading away again? Like, where, where are we at now with being able to sell physical records? No, we still sell physical records, but people mm. want good stuff. so what does that mean (laughs) well i mean well in the first 10 years of our um in the first 10 years of our store there was a lot of shitty music sold on vinyl (laughs) yeah and nowadays there's a lot of good stuff and that's where the competition is as well you know everybody's putting out the craziest and the weirdest undiscovered master tape this and that stuff yeah 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 it's just uh yeah there's just a lot on offer if you like to buy records now you now there's a crazy amount on offer Mm-mm. if it's sustainable yeah i don't know it's not up to me so i wanted to um mention huni briefly because um i think two of my probably two of my favorite rush hour records are the hunch music and the recent uh hunch and all night compilation well i guess it's not that recent now is it but it feels recent to me yeah. Um, and I feel like his taste has made a bit of an impact in the kind of recent uh, rush hour history as well. Because um, did he not also compile the Sounds of the Far East m- material yeah. from Sweet Chitarada, yeah. which is is one of my absolute favorite records probably ever. All right. All right. <laughs> I just love it. I've, when I first heard that, I just it spoke to me very deeply. Nice. Um, could you tell me a bit about kind of collaborating with? Huni, because you also DJ together, right? Which I don't think you do with, with other people or not, not often to my knowledge. No, I mean, this at one point, maybe, I don't know, 2012 or something. Um, I heard one of his first records and also spoke about it with, um, or I had a partner in Rush Hour, but we're not partners anymore. But he left uh, around 2012, so almost 10 years ago. And right before that, we got into a Huni record. and he started contacting Huni and they uh, made a release together because there is two releases around that time on the Rush Hour label to 12 inches from Huni. But I also started communicating, you know, just as a, on a friendly relationship with Huni. So we just had contact and we talked here and there a little bit. And over the years, that became a bit more. Um, so at some point we invited him for a party. We started DJing together and it was a fun night, right? And we did it again, maybe six, seven months later. And it was also a fun night. And then, um, yeah, we became kind of friends and he moved to, uh, he planned to move to Los Angeles at some point. And, um, after Los Angeles, he wanted to move back to Europe. And then we were talking and then he was like, yeah, I come and live in Amsterdam. So great. So he came to live in Amsterdam. And so we saw each other more often. Uh, and then we started playing together in the trial as well. And uh, yeah, and it kind of became a thing, you know, when we DJ together, I think people would like that. 
and uh, he had his style of DJing. I had my style of DJing, and we kind of met, but we also have differences. And um, yeah, and around 2014, that we just started DJing more together, and then around he was also working on music and making his album, and yeah, it was only logical that. Uh, we would put it out, I guess, because we were so um, often uh, together in that sense. And uh, yeah, then we put out this album. Uh, and then we talked about doing some more stuff for the label. And he mentioned Suichi Terada, that he liked his music. I didn't know Suichi Terada apart from one song. And uh, I said, well, if you want to make a compilation, you know, it's nice. Let's do it. So he emailed Suichi Terada. And I think... Um, Within within one hour, Suichi Terada already emailed back and he sends all his music through. <laughs> yeah, and we were like, whoa, okay. It's like he's been waiting for that email yeah, for yeah. years, you know? <laughs> yeah, but sometimes you, you travel the whole world and you achieve nothing and sometimes it's just an email and it's like, <laughs> bomb, it's arranged. Right. And he was very into it, Suichi. Uh, he's also the most, uh, he must be the most friendly person uh, on earth. I think it's, I mean, it's uh, such a sweet, sweet guy. Um, but yeah, we, so the, when he made the compilation, I listened as well, we, you know, and we came to a selection and, uh, yeah. And it's we a special it kind of record really, isn't it? Cause it's like, you know, it's, it's rebooted his career, I guess, or, you know, rebooted perception of him abroad but also kind of introduced a lot of people to it like I hear it often you know I hear those tracks frequently now I hear them in cafes and stuff which yeah. it, it must be quite interesting to to see that through that that impact that you can have with something like a, a reissue I think that's quite heartwarming really <laughs> yeah 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 and it's it, it happened with uh, more musicians yeah I mean that's that's indeed it's great that it can happen when you put somebody's music out again maybe 20 years after the original production date and then all of a sudden the art artist is also able to uh play live shows again and he had right, he had right. some great years you know the last years he was performing constantly traveled the whole world and not one round but a couple of rounds <laughs> so yeah it's, that's uh, a beautiful thing indeed yeah the other thing i guess about your kind of working relationship and friendship with Huni is just the idea that um, that it continues to be possible to meet new kind of creative collaborators who you're on the same wavelength with, e even when you get older, I guess. Because something that I've sort of been thinking about quite a lot recently is how one can maintain a love of dance music specifically as, as you get older and as your friends stop coming out and the scene kind of changes and people change. I was wondering... Like if you went through that phase where you weren't anymore like a 19-year-old with loads of records to sell, you were maybe like a 35-year-old and you'd been there for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a point where you'd ever thought like, oh, should I still be doing this? Yeah, of course. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of course. But uh, not per se should I still be doing this, but often it's more often that uh, there's a weight on your shoulders, I guess, with... Uh, all the work that needs to be done that I sometimes think like, Oh my God, what am I doing? You know, but, um, what do you mean? And you mean like the just work like that running the label a requires company from you? and a distribution mm -hmm. and working with people, managing people, doing all this stuff. Uh, and then 
occupying yourself with uh, with with work that sometimes you wonder is this what what you know is this uh, good for me or is this something i try to maintain so obviously you as a as a as somebody who has his own business over 24 years it's not one straight line up or anything it's not but i've also learned that when i for instance uh, am depressed or down for a certain i don't know because there's something happened i don't like or something i often just go to bed you know and i sleep it out <laughs> and i wake up the next day and have energy again you know and then i realize <laughs> like the things i do that i really like doing them but you know it's like often with everything you like, 95% is work and 5% is the idea to like, right? So it's, it's not, it's not easy per se, but I've also learned that, you know, if I keep on going, often there is something more enjoyable than, you know, right? So, but that's when I feel a bit like, hmm. Yeah. I was wondering as well, uh, cause I know that, well, quite, quite a long time ago, uh, you were ill, right? You had cancer, but I, mm. I I read in RA you said that you were well, and that was a long time ago. And I just wonder how how you could have got through that part and still kind of found the energy to to come back. But maybe the experience of being ill and then returning to music is kind of an inspiration in its own way. How did you get through that period? Yeah, I mean it. Uh, it was twice actually. Um, right. so it was two times, uh, one and a half years. Um, did you still travel and do things in those, in those times when you could then you, you kind of. No, because when, when it happened, when it happens, when you get, when I got ill at least, and I needed to go into chemotherapy and that lasted, uh, three times, three weeks. So nine weeks. Wow. So if you get nine weeks of chemotherapy, then... You're not doing anything else. <laughs> no, you get... I mean, first I got in because it was the first time. So, um, I, you know, you put, I feel completely healthy. I guess that's mm. for a lot of people before they get chemotherapy. They hear they are sick, but yeah, you feel healthy. Right, yeah. As soon as the chemotherapy starts and the stuff goes into your veins, you start to feel miserable. And then I realized, okay, I can't really do much. Uh, and it got worse over the course of nine weeks. But then at the end of the nine weeks, I was so tired. And that then you need, then I needed like, uh, maybe, maybe the rest of the year or another, what is it? Another 50 weeks or something to, to just get back to normal level. But the first thing I was 27 or 28 or something. Wow. Yeah, and so then, young. yeah, and then the second time, um, the second time I got quite angry, and I I started to um, detach me from so-called friends or anything that I you know I thought was a waste of time. I really started minimalizing uh, my surroundings. Hmm. I, I I just felt like I was living in uh, extra time or something, right? And I just wanted <laughs> to spend it on the things that uh, mattered to me. Right, right. And that's also when I split, for instance, with my partner in the shop and I split with other people. And then uh, then I kind of started my new life in extra time. That's how it felt. <laughs> and I started traveling. I also said at home, if I want to, 
achieve some things. I need to work in that direction or do this or that. And I started to become more uh, focused towards where I wanted to go. And this was all around 2012 and up, I think. Mm. And uh, yeah. So in fact, the last eight years of the whole Russia story are really quite different for you personally then. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Also, uh, yeah, yeah. And is it the case then that you actually hadn't been... um, hadn't been touring as a DJ so much until the last eight. Like, is that something that you'd sort of tried to do more of in this extra time <laughs> period? Yeah, I, I right. guess because I've always DJed a lot, but it was uh, a little bit outside Holland and maybe three times a week in Amsterdam. Right. So I always DJed a lot with here and there uh, uh, something outside. So uh, I don't know, Enrico Volkov invited me once to Milan or Sashije once to uh, Switzerland and you know uh, Bart uh, Red D in Belgium there's, a, there's these people once in a while you would go out but often in Amsterdam but um, I think in 2012 I became a bit more focused but at the same time also things like I don't know resident advisor or Facebook and Instagram and whatnot all these things started to make the world a bit smaller right <laughs> in yeah. a way yes yeah and certainly in dance music terms that yeah makes sense. Mm. because i i i mean people in amsterdam they would move to berlin and it would always be like yeah it's great in berlin and blah 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 and i was never really interested just stayed in amsterdam and uh i think i played in the panorama bar when the place was already 10 years there or whatever i, di- <laughs> I didn't even know yeah, when yeah. I came there, I was like, whoa. And the same thing for uh, for Concrete in um, in Paris. And when I started playing those places, I got really into it. And mm. people, I guess people also talk about it and blah, blah, blah. So the international thing started to grow slowly but surely. But that's also quite interesting because if you had done all of that kind of traveling, that amount of traveling... 10 years before then, I'm not sure that the kind of sound and the, what I certainly perceive of as the scene of Amsterdam and that kind of, that little scene of DJs, I I don't know if it would have developed in the same way, right? Like there is something that you don't get anymore where like a, a city can have its own moment and people are kind of influencing each other. I don't know, maybe it seems to me that if people are constantly traveling to different places then everything becomes more similar yeah because no but it's true that uh when in the first 10 years for instance if we would do a party in amsterdam you would see a lot of the guys you know uh everybody that does something with music would go there but in the last five years a lot of people are constantly traveling so we would see each other less in amsterdam yeah, uh, and maybe <laughs> you'd end up seeing else. each other at yeah. the festival or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that kind of brings me to my final question, which is, well, really, just about the the situation that we're in, and I guess if you have thoughts about what dance music could look like after this period, because yeah, the world has got smaller um, in many ways, like the idea of an international dance music scene, it's almost become a a small place in some senses, uh, which is really predicated on 
travel, being able for the DJs to be able to travel on cheap flights and for people to go and travel around and be tourists. And a lot of that might change and a lot of venues are at risk and a lot of artists are struggling. I guess on an optimistic note, <laughs> I wonder what you would like to see happen in the next year or so as we kind of return to dance stores. Is there anything that you think could change or or could be um, that, you, that you would want to see in, in the future? Uh, wow. <laughs> what a question. Uh, well, first of all, I hope or I think as soon as we can go out again that it goes off. And I, 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 I don't necessarily hope that for myself, but uh, I have a niece, yeah, I have a little niece from 16 years, 17 years old, right? And they are stuck at home. So I believe uh, these people, uh, you know, at that age group, you want to go out. So as soon as we are able to go out, they're probably going to go off. So they're going to have a great time. So <laughs> I don't wish for it, but I think that's definitely going to happen. And um, yeah, for myself, I hope I can uh, go back to DJing again. But again, you know, I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think, you know, there's a lot of people with a hard time. And uh, yeah, I, I just hope they get through uh, healthy and happy. And uh, as soon as uh, things start again, they probably it goes slow or it doesn't go slow. I don't know. We have to see. And there's nothing much I wish for. Then I just hope that, you know, this stuff goes away quick. Do you ever think about what your like first few tunes will be when you get to play out? Uh, no, <laughs> but I do have a pile, a, a big pile of stuff that I want <laughs> to play out. Antel, thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels. 